If you ask people what a holy man looks like, uh, you might hear a description of someone who resembles a person by the name of Simeon the Stylite. Uh, Simeon was born in uh, 388 in Syria. He converted to Christianity as a young man after reading the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, When he converted, Christianity had been legal in the Roman Empire for uh, over 70 years and had been the official state religion for over a decade. So official persecution had ended, and there were some who believed that following Christ was not costing them enough. It wasn't hard enough. Um, Without the threat of being thrown to the lions, they feared becoming soft. They feared not really growing like their predecessors had. So what they did is they created the hardships for themselves. Uh, They imposed on themselves physical suffering uh, because there wasn't any persecution going on. Uh, Simeon was a master at this. Uh, One of his early habits was uh, to stand as long as possible until his legs gave out. Uh, One year during Lent, he was fasting and his fellow believers saw him and he, he collapsed and they went over and they examined him and they found out that he had taken pond fronds and tied them into a belt that he'd wrapped around his waist so tightly that it had dug into his flesh uh, and had caused him to pass out. Uh, in fact, it had wounded him, and the palm fronds were so embedded in the wound, he had to soak in a bath for hours to get the uh, palm fronds out. Um, after he recovered from that, he spent the next 18 months of his life living alone in a small hut. Another Lent passed. This time he fasted the entire period of Lent and his survival was deemed a miracle by those who who saw him. Um, He moved from the hut to a rocky ledge. Uh, It was an isolated cliff. It was about uh, 20 meters across. And he sought holiness through isolation. The problem was people kept coming to see him. Um, So eventually he moved to the top of a pillar It was a pillar that had been left over uh, from a uh, building that had fallen apart, and and all that was left was the pillar, and he moved up on top of this pillar. Uh, The first one that he lived on was four meters tall. It was replaced by a a higher uh, pillar, and he stayed on top of that pillar without leaving for 37 years. Uh, he, He never came down. His food was carried up to him. Uh, occasionally people would come to consult with him. They'd climb a ladder and they'd talk to him. Uh, but that's where he lived, on this little platform on top of a, of a pole. Through uh, the sun of summer and the cold of winter, that's where he lived. That's where he got the name Simeon the Stylite. Because he had imitators, other stylites. But Simeon is the king of the stylites, in fact, Uh, I understand he's still listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for pole sitting. Um, He was a holy man. He had a reputation as a holy man. And because that's what we think of, we tend to think of holy people as remote and distant and detached. Um, Holiness in, in people is not real. They're, they're separated. They live in another existence. They don't, they don't engage in the same joys and troubles and travails and, and, uh, that, that we do. 
I want to direct your attention this morning to a passage of scripture, though, that could not be further from this this belief. In fact, rather than being distant and removed, holiness is actually intimate. It's up close in its best incarnation. You would be hard pressed to tell the difference between holiness and love. You think about that. Do you know any holy people? You, you probably do. It's just you're not looking in the right place. Instead of looking up on the pillar, you're supposed to be looking down on the ground with people, caring for them, loving them. I want to show that to you, and I want to show that to you by taking you to Leviticus chapter 19. If you haven't turned me in your Bibles to Leviticus 19, I'd like you to do so uh, right now. We're working through this book of the Bible, and we come to chapter 19. Uh, Leviticus 19 is a long and varied passage, and I want to read it to you as we begin. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus, of course, the third book in the Bible. So open it from the table of contents and flip a few pages, a hundred or so, and you'll come to Leviticus chapter 19. And I'm going to read these uh, 37 verses of this uh, passage. All right, Leviticus chapter 19, let's start in verse 1. Hear what Holy Scripture says. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over, though, until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your, Lord, of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in, his, in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seeds. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. If a man sleeps with a female slave who is promised to another man, but who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. Yet they are not to be put to death because she had not been freed. 
The man, however, must bring a ram to the entrance to the tent of meeting for a guilt offering to the Lord. With the ram of the guilt offering, the priest is to make atonement for him before the Lord for the sin he has committed and his sin will be forgiven. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are to consider it forbidden, it must not be eaten. In the fourth year all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you, will, you may eat its fruit, and this way your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Do not eat, 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 do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. Do not practice divination or seek omens. Do not cut the hair at the side of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights and honest ephah and an honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. Now, this is a lengthy and diverse set of laws. Uh, Some of them seem placed here at random. Um, I think that the ties between them would be a little clearer if we lived uh, at the same time period and if we spoke this original language. There's some more linguistic and cultural ties in here, but still, some of them, they're just here, seemingly thrown together. One thing is very clear. I wonder if you observed this. One thing very clearly God wanted them to know. He wanted them to know that what? I am the Lord. Right. Okay, good. You were paying attention. And you spoke. This is a Baptist church. Keep that in mind. There are... That phrase appears 16 times. 16 times in this passage. And um, it it probably... It seems like it's section marked. It's almost like a chorus or a refrain. Uh, This repeated sentence. Uh, It's a claim of authority. We've talked about how that's true. God is saying to them, I have the right to tell you how to live. Yet, it's more than that. Do you remember, Gordon Wendham points this out, he's a fine commentator on Leviticus. Do you remember how God introduced himself to the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt? I am the Lord, and I have come to rescue you. I've come to free you from the slavery. I've come to fulfill the promises that I made to the patriarchs. And by saying this over and over again, I am the Lord, God is, is reminding them that their obedience to these promises is a call to, to respond to his grace. It's a loving response. Who, who is asking me to do all of these things? God, God is. The Lord. The one who rescued us from Egypt. I wonder, as we read this too, if, if you recognize uh, the Ten Commandments here. Uh, Several of them are repeated in this passage. Some of them are are fleshed out. They're explained in greater detail. 
And I wonder, too, if you notice, this is the only type of law that, that God could give. Only God could give this law. Why, why is it the case? Well, think about just verse 17. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Verse 18 says, love your neighbor. Do you, could Congress pass a law like that? What would happen if Congress were to pass a law? Thou shalt not hate thy congressman. <laughs> yeah. uh, thou shalt love thy senator as thyself. Congress doesn't have the right to, to, to order that. Congress cannot command you to have a certain attitude or to have a certain affection towards someone. But God can. This is a law that only God could give. Now, to unfold this, this chapter, what I want to do is I want to share with you seven simple uh, summary statements. I fear that because of their simplicity, uh, they sound a little bit like cliches. But this is a passage that wants to show you the numerous flavors and textures and colors of love. That's what the chief concern is here. Uh, this is another one of those chapters, like chapter 18, that we can read very uh, directly. This is God's will, not just for Israel, but for all of God's people. Now, some of the things are clearly outside our cultural, our social domain, and we need to read those and, and interpret those carefully. Uh, but, but generally, this is a blazing statement uh, of, of love that is very relevant for us. And I want to show them to you because... It, it's easy. I have an easy time with passages of Scripture that tell me to do things that I want to do or that I'm used to doing or that are comfortable for me. Sometimes we, we can fall into the rut of, of championing those things. We love the things that are easy. We love the things that we are, come naturally to us. We, we, we're, we're very comfortable following God's commands when, when it kind of accords with our own wishes. But what about those places where God wants to take us out of what is comfortable or out of our natural tendencies? Well, this passage can help. This can help show us the textures, the length and the breadth in which this love for neighbor that honors God shows up. So these, these seven summary statements. Number one, love, uh, love is loyal to the covenant God. Love is loyal to the covenant God. That's actually how this chapter begins, isn't it? In, in chapter uh, 19, the first three verses here, the, 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 actually the verses 3 and 4, a restatement of, of three of the Ten Commandments. Um, that word in verse uh, 3, it starts with honoring your father and mother. Oh, well, actually, the text says mother and father, doesn't it? Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments were first given, it says father and mother. Here it says mother and father. That's because the honor and respect you owe your parents is interchangeable. This word respect is used later for how we're to revere God. Now, why does he start at home? All these things, this reflection of love for neighbor, why does he start here with your mom and dad? Well, a couple of reasons come to mind. Number one, who's your closer neighbor than your mom or dad? They live probably pretty close to you. Uh, their zip code is at least the same, I'm thinking. Especially if you're at home, right? Um, another reason I think that he mentions uh, mother and father is because where else do you first learn about holiness and love if not from your parents? They're your first instructors in this 
love of neighbor task. He goes on from there, uh, mother and father, to another one of the commandments. Observe the Sabbath. Lord willing, when we get to chapter 23, we're going to talk about the Sabbath in, in greater detail. Then he goes in verse 4 to idols. And then in verses 5 through 8, he talks about sacrifices, but only specific instructions for the fellowship offerings. Why does he do this? Remember, the fellowship offering is the culminating offering. It's the final one that you would offer in that whole series. And it was the one in which the normal Israelites would have most individual participation. This is the one they had the most responsibility. And here it points out you've got a responsibility to eat the meat or burn it up. That's your job. Do it very carefully. We start this holy chapter, this chapter about holy love, rather, with commands about God's representatives in your home, your parents, God's day, the Sabbath, God's image, don't make idols, and God's worship, fellowship offerings. We start there, and then they go into more specifics, Moses does, about love for neighbor. And by doing so, I think Leviticus here is aligning with the Lord Jesus himself. When the Lord Jesus talked about the greatest commandments, where did he start? God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, second, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a consistent theme in the Bible. For love to be oriented properly, it must first be vertical and then horizontal. Now what this means here, and what the Bible teaches, is that if you don't know God, there are aspects of love that you cannot know and cannot express. Love is that much a part of who God is. If you're not properly oriented to him, you can't really express genuine love. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that only Christian people can do loving things. There are loving atheists in the world, and there are loving Muslims and loving Buddhists who who really do genuine, helpful deeds of kindness and mercy. I imagine that among the groups that are in the Philippines or heading to the Philippines, there are representatives from these other faiths and representatives of no faith. But there is an element, there is an element of love that is missing. Something's not there that should be present in how you love. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to insult you, I'm trying to say there is a, a broader range of love to consider. And I don't want to just insult you. I want the rest of us to think about this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and your love that you show towards your neighbor is no different than the person who doesn't know Christ around you, then whose love are you actually demonstrating? Holy love is different in quality because it starts here with covenant loyalty. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Number two, love is generous to the poor. Love is generous to the poor. Look again at verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. This is the legislation in the Bible that is the practice, gives us the biblical practice of gleaning, of gleaning. Farmers were supposed to leave crops in their fields so the poor could go and get them. This is probably not a socially, cultural, transferable principle. At the time it was, though. 
Uh, this gleaning is actually an important part of the book of Ruth. Ruth was in the field gleaning. Um, actually, the, the Bible shows us how honorable a man Boaz is because he obeyed the law and left things there for the poor to come and gather. And the farmers left the crops there and the poor had to go get them. It's an important principle, I think. This is not the only thing that the Bible says about the poor. And, and this is a figuring out how we as a church or we as a society or the government or those of us as individual followers of Christ can help the poor is not a simple issue. But notice this principle here. The Bible wants to uphold human dignity through the value of labor. It does not tell the farmers to get the grain and go give it to the poor. It tells the farmers to leave the grain there and let the poor go get it. There's this, this dignity uh, upheld in, in labor and the value of, of labor. Holy love manifests itself in caring for the poor. Whatever you do as an expression of this, be sure that you include your children so they can watch you, so they know what you're doing, so that you can disciple them in caring for the poor. Now, love num- uh, number three. Number three, love is just. Love is just. There are a broad number of commands here about justice. Uh, justice was a, a community project. The court of the law in the town was at the city gate, near the city gate, and the elders of the town were the judges. Everybody had a responsibility in in seeing that justice was done. There wasn't this separation that there is in our culture between us and judges. Uh, The judges there were part of the neighborhood, part of the community. They knew them. They They lived near them. They had been around for a number of years. Our judges, our justices... It's not quite the way it is. <laughs> you know, I voted a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, I had an opportunity to um, uh, vote for judges, and I, I went into the booth not knowing some of their names. Um, I I don't think I'm alone in that. It was it was much more uh, intimate though. Justice was a community project. So here are some commands and concerns when you're enacting justice. Verse twelve. Don't lie when you're called as a witness. That's what swearing falsely means. Look at verse 15. There's to be no favoritism. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You should be treated the same under the law. Bill de Blasio was just elected as the mayor of New York City, and a few months ago he was interviewed because someone had accused him of being an atheist. And uh, he responded in this, this interview that he was not an atheist. In fact, he was a very devout Roman Catholic. And um, he believed in Roman Catholic liberation theology. And he said, as an expression of his commitment to Roman Catholic liberation theology, he believed that when the poor came before the court of justice or when the decisions were being made that would affect both rich and poor, poor the poor should automatically receive preferential treatment. Uh, the Bible is, is uh, scathing against treating the rich uh, with preferential free treatment, but, but the poor should not receive it either. Uh, verses 35 and 36 here are about dishonest weights and standards and scales. That's a justice issue. I think justice, a concern for justice, drives this very unusual passage in verses 20 through 22 about the slave girl. 
If a slave girl sleeps with one man when she has been promised to another, what should happen? Well, under certain circumstances, both of them would be put to death for adultery, but she was not free. Um, She's not a free moral agent. She's not executed, but because she matters and because marriage matters, the justice of a reparation offering must be made. This is a concern for justice. Love is just. Every citizen in Israel was concerned about justice, and it was an expression of love for neighbor. I'm sure this presses us in a number of ways. Can I suggest one of them to you? One of the ways that this this presses us in in how we are concerned uh, for our fellow citizens in our culture that we're feeling these days is in the role that gambling plays in our society. Uh, A lot of states in recent years, several states, most recently the state of New York, have voted to expand gambling, and it's presented as this is a way that we cannot raise taxes. We don't have to raise taxes on people. We'll expand gambling and we'll tax the casinos and not the citizens, and it will save you money. The the problem is that every study that has ever been conducted about gambling shows that it preys on the poor and the uneducated. The house always wins, and the losers are those who often can least afford to lose. This is a love for neighbor issue, it seems to me. Um, Recently, Albert Moeller expressed his his conviction, his opinion, that he thinks that in years to come, the Republican Party is going to become increasingly libertarian and less conservative. That is, it's going to continue to argue for fiscal care, but it's going to increasingly take no position on social issues. Let the people do what they want. But we have to consider whether or not we're truly loving our neighbors to allow, to vote to allow our government to prey on our fellow citizens, some of whom are the weakest in our uh, country. Love is is just. Uh, Let's move on. Number four here. Love divides. Love divides. This is not the normally way we think about love. Love brings us all together, right? That's what love does. Love never draws lines or borders anywhere. That's what love is supposed to do. Well, not according to this text. There is a separating aspect of love. For the sake of love, you seek to separate those you love from what is harmful and dangerous and, and deceitful. You know this if you're a parent, Right? You'll spend a great deal of time separating your children from what will hurt them. <laughs> we're at the point, and I'm so happy, uh, we're at the point where when I uh, want to plug something in at my house, if I find one of those awful little covers, um, I, I, uh, when, I, when I go get the butter knife to pry it out, I can take it and throw it away because we don't need them anymore. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking that it was awful cruel of me to separate my toddlers from the volts of electricity just waiting for them to enjoy that it was necessary, right? I'm at the point, I'm so glad, where I can get aspirin out of the medicine cabinet without having to, to push three buttons simultaneously on the lock designed to keep them all 14 inches apart. I have separated my children from what will hurt them. Uh, Your teenagers will not appreciate this dividing aspect of love, will they? 
uh, when you seek to separate them from movies, from websites, from social gatherings, from certain types of, of music. Love divides, though. It's what it does. In this passage, there are symbolic separations. Particular only to the nation of Israel, there were symbolic separations that communicated this. They're in verses 19. Verse 19. Keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Huh. There were no mules in ancient Israel. They're all over Lancaster County. They were not in ancient Israel. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Um, this is symbolic things. This is not a, uh, um, a moral statement. So some of this is moral, though. Look here, verse 26. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. We've talked about this, but this is a Canaanite practice. Do not, here we go, practice divination or seek omens. Here's another cultural separation that the Canaanites would do. Do not cut the hair at the side of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Verse 28. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Uh, These are Canaanite practices, specific uh, Canaanite practices that they were to avoid. Don't... um, Cutting your body for the dead, putting tattoo marks on yourself. A tattoo would be a symbol of allegiance to a foreign god that you would mark your body with. Cutting your body for the dead was a way to honor the dead. Don't do these Canaanite practices. There should be division here. Uh, Skip down here for a minute. Just We'll come back to that. But skip down to verse 31. Again, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists. For you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. The Canaanites, they wanted to know the future. They wanted mediums, sorcerers, spiritists to tell them the future. We have God's revealed word and we obey it in faith, especially when it doesn't speak to us as clearly as we want about the future. We obey in faith. Now, I wonder if you are thinking, what am I going to say about verse 28? Do not put tattoo marks on yourselves. Hmm. Well, isn't that interesting? Um, It was a cultural, it was a pagan practice. Um, but it, it, perhaps more is going on here. Gordon Wenham, again, that excellent commentator on Leviticus, thinks that this warning is not only a, a removal of Canaanite practices, but he, this is a warning here about um, the fact that we are image bearers and we are made in God's image, so we shouldn't mark our bodies out of respect for the God who made the bodies that we have. Uh, this uh, may be an issue. Uh, some of you, maybe, maybe you want to say, hey, well, okay, I'm not going to mark my body uh, with tattoo to a pagan god. I'm going to mark it with uh, uh, signs for God. I'm going to put a cross on my body or a nice Bible verse. Does that count? Is that okay? Well, here's uh, what I want to say about tattoos. I don't intend to get one. I'm sure some of you are really surprised by that. You're shocked that that's my practice. Or I was going to say, rats, I was going to say I don't intend to get any more is what I intended to say. But 
<laughs> when I first uh, candidated, my first week, I think I've told you this before, when I first visited Grace, it was coming in 1999 to, to candidate, uh, Bill Weaver was the chairman of the Pastoral Search Committee. And, you know, Bill's a gracious man. And Bill said to me, uh, we were talking about uh, being picked up at the airport and how we'd recognize me. And, and Bill said, well, uh, we have your picture, so we'll recognize you. And I said to Bill, well, I also just got my nose pierced, so you'll be able to find me that way, too. <laughs> it's a long pause. <laughs> I don't intend to get a, a tattoo. Um, if my children ask me, I will tell them that they are free to get a tattoo when they can pay for it with their own money and live under their own roof. And here is a wonderful opportunity for me to remind you and to remind myself actually of an important principle in the Bible. I do not believe that as pastor of this congregation, I have the authority to decide this issue for you. Uh, this command is not repeated in the New Testament. We're, we're, not even, we're not sure about this connection to being image bearers. It's not explicit here. This is not a gospel issue. The New Testament endues elders in the church with a lot of authority, but it is still limited authority. I don't have the right to tell you how to educate your children. Uh, I can talk about some biblical principles involved, but I don't have the right to demand any practice of you. I cannot demand you abstain from alcohol. Not, that's not my right. I do not have that authority in your life. The elders cannot make binding pronouncements about dancing, about entertaining, about card playing, or about how much you should spend on a house. The elders cannot make pronouncements about how much you should give to the congregation. The Bible gives us authority, but it is certainly limited authority, and I don't have the authority to tell you what to do in this situation. And think about this. There is a lot more material in the Bible about how to love one another with our different convictions than there is about these social issues. So if you really want to study what the Bible says about that, start where it talks about love first, and, and then you can fight about tattoos and drinking and dancing and playing cards. Statement number five here. Let's move on. Love is considerate. Love is considerate. I think the word considerate is bland. But, but here's what I, I want to communicate here. This chapter's vision of love as something that shows proper care and respect for others, uh, particularly those who are most vulnerable. Look at verse 14. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Or uh, look over at verse uh, 32. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. Consideration. Or, ah, verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Remember this, when you speak about immigrants... What do you think about when, when you hear somebody struggling with English or someone not speaking English? It's America. Speak English. Or, or what, do, what do you think about when you're driving downtown and you see somebody evidently dressed in, in the, the clothing of the culture from which they come? Uh, you know the standard? Look at the standard here. Love them as yourself. 
This is not a passage that's arguing for amnesty. This is not a passage that's decriminalizing illegal immigration. Those things didn't even exist in the Bible. But this is the second greatest commandment applied to foreigners, to immigrants. Number six, love is courageous. Love is courageous. We're going to spend the rest of our time together in verses 17 and 18. They're they're really central to this passage. Verse 17. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Look at these contrasting commands. Do not hate, is in verse 17, And do not seek revenge or bear grudge is in verse 18. In contrast, rebuke in love in verse 17 and love in verse 18. This word rebuke means confront or admonish. And it takes courage to do that. Rather than outwardly hating your fellow Israelite or inwardly bearing a grudge, warn them, admonish them, confront them. I hope that in the coming years our congregation grows. I hope that uh, many people become followers of Jesus Christ because of our, uh, of our church. And I hope that people that move into Lancaster County are looking for a church. I hope that they will find here a warm and welcoming place where we encourage them to, to follow Christ. And as we grow, the, the nature of our love certainly will, will need to change in, in some, some regards. But this is uh, an element that we can't forget. And sometimes it's so easy. This unstated agreement we have. (laughs) I've known you for a long time. You've known me for a long time. I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. I won't talk to you about your temper. You don't talk to me about what I do with my money. Let's just, there's topics we don't talk about. This unstated agreement. This sort of love here is, is undeniably messy. Undeniably so. Rebuke your neighbor frankly. The deep involvement in someone's life. Chuck Swindoll wrote one of his uh, best books, I think, over 20 years ago. It was called The Grace Awakening. This celebration of the grace of God. And I remember reading that for the first time, and, and he said in the forward to his book, or in the early chapters, what I'm writing about in this book is something that I did, have not thought about it and have not practiced as much as I should. This is something he said that I missed in the Bible, this grand celebration of the great grace of God. And I read that book and I thought to myself, how do you avoid that happening? I don't want to live for 20 years and then have somebody or then find out something I missed that could have dramatically helped me. How do you avoid that? Here's how. The way to avoid that is that you are supposed to help me in that. It's not easy. You might talk about things uh, that are deeply embedded as part of my personality. I might not respond very well at first, but I need you to speak courageously to me. And there are people sitting around you that need you to speak courageously to them. Ten years ago, a Kansas City pharmacist was charged with diluting cancer treatment drugs. He was trying to make more money, so uh, Robert Courtney diluted drugs during a period of time from November 2000 to March 2001. Think about this. He had 
cancer treatment drugs, life-saving medicine in his hands, and so that he could gain, so he could make more money, he diluted it to the point where it wasn't actually helping other people. It's a terrible crime. Are you doing the same thing with truth that you know from God's word? You cannot claim to love other people. You cannot claim to love your neighbor if you will not confront them. Finally, here's number seven. Number seven, love is costly. Love is costly. Uh, Our Lord directs our attention to this when he called this passage the second greatest commandment, these five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. What are we supposed to do? Love. Who are we to love? Your neighbor. What is the standard for this love? Yourself. Now, some people think that this is a command here in the Bible to love yourself. They argue that in order to love other people, you have to love yourself first. And this verse becomes a launching pad to talk about self-esteem and how you need to have good self-esteem in order to really love other people. But this is not a command to love yourself. Actually, this passage assumes that you already do. Now, to make some of you object. I want to raise a question, you say. I don't love myself. In fact, I hate myself. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. But often, this sense of self-hatred is actually the flip side of love. I know it sounds strange, but this sense of self-loathing or this sense of low self-esteem, it can sometimes or as often anger, anger directed at yourself. And you're angry with yourself because you don't meet the high standards that you believe, because you love yourself, you ought to be able to meet. You hate how you aren't as good as you think you ought to be. That's itself a form of self-love. And probably a discussion for another time. The standard is love your neighbor as yourself. And if you think about this, this is a terrible burden. It's a terrific imposition. You love yourself and you're probably pretty good at it. When you're hungry, you find yourself a snack, the snack, the one that you want. When you're thirsty, you get yourself a drink, the drink, the one that you want. If there's a rock in your shoe, you stop, you take your shoe off. If that doesn't solve the problem, you take your sock off. You look, you find the stone. When you're sleepy, you put yourself to bed. When, you want to, when you're bored, you entertain yourself. When you have a little extra money, you find something that will make you happy. You, you love yourself. I love myself every day, all day. We do all kinds of loving things to ourselves. And this is the standard. Love your neighbor this way. (laughs) Call me the next time you have a rock in your shoe. I'll come over to your house, take your shoe off and find it. Right? Think about this here, this story. Uh, Julia read the story a few minutes ago, the story of, of the Good Samaritan. What did it cost that Good Samaritan to be a neighbor? It cost him his time, his money, his dignity, and caring for someone else's body. He had to get all up in his fluids. It cost him his energy. Um, it, 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 he took a risk. It took a risk for him to stop and help him. The robbers could have come back. Uh, uh, this, this, is, this is costly love. And, and, you know, speaking of this verse actually reminds me, it gives me the opportunity to commend, there are men and women in our congregation who love like this. A lot of them. You, you know them. You've been the recipient of their love or their encouragement. 
This verse is not supposed to be a club to beat people, but, but realize, brothers and sisters, this is not a self-sustaining command. You cannot continue to love at this pace with this standard without yourself being refreshed and filled, which is why I think this passage says over and over again, I am the Lord. God is saying to the Egyptians, uh, the Israelites, he's saying to them, I am the one who made you. I'm the one who made promises to your fathers. I'm the one who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. I led you through the sea. I gave you my good word. I promised to be with you. I am the Lord. I love you. Now go show that love to others. We read this command after this cross, and we have so much more to ponder, don't we? I am the Lord. When you were my enemy, I loved you, and I sent my son to die for you. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, right? God proves how much he loved us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That verse, I I feel foolish about this. That verse has always puzzled me a little bit. I, I wasn't born... 2,000 years after Christ died. I, I know in the overall scheme of the eternal plan of God, sure, I was, I was, I was a, a sinner, but, but not at, at that moment. <laughs> Silly me, it occurred to me. Paul, writing to the Romans, they were all alive when Christ was crucified. Paul was about the same age as Jesus. Uh, he would have been, therefore, roughly in his 30s when Christ was crucified. What was Paul doing at that moment? Where was he? Maybe he was in Tarsus at home trying to prove how righteous he was by obeying the law. Maybe he was in Jerusalem. Could it be that the Apostle Paul, Saul, was in Jerusalem and was there and saw Christ being crucified and approved of it because he thought it was the right thing to do? What were those recipients of the book of Romans? What were they first doing? They were in Rome. What were they doing? Consulting mediums. Offering sacrifices to idols, pursuing sexual immorality, disrespecting their parents. They were in it as thick as possible in A.D. 33, while several hundred miles away, God was crucifying his son for them. The demonstration of his love. At the same time, at the same time that you were in rebellion against God, the son was being sacrificed. Now, my timestamp, I know my timestamp on my life reads a bit differently, but to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to recognize this incongruity. My condition is that I am sinful, rebellious, deserving of God's wrath, but instead of God's wrath, I have been given mercy in Jesus. He lived the perfect life I should have lived, and then he died the death on the cross that I should have died. And all who turn to him by faith find life and forgiveness. That's the sort of love that makes this neighbor love possible. This constantly refreshing love is is often the element that's missing from those who, who do not know God. This is the pattern. The father loves the son. He said it over and over again in the New Testament, didn't he? In the Gospels. This is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. And the son, basking in the love of his father, obeyed him and went to the cross to offer himself. Brothers and sisters, uh, the Father now, we are the objects of the love of the Father and the Son. Bask in it, and being so loved, you now can love your neighbor. 
Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Lord, you are a, a great God. You are um, majestic and supreme. You are loving and merciful. You, in your great wisdom, you know 10,000 ways to show love to your children. And we who are followers of Jesus Christ are the recipients of all of those flavors and textures uh, and tones of love. Father, I pray that you would would stretch us so that we might um, love uh, others with, with those tones and textures and flavors. Help us to remember those that that we forget or that we neglect or that are outside of our our comfort zone. Stretch us. Don't do it by um, spreading us thin. Don't spread us thin. Fill us more so that the overflow can spread further. Do that, Philip. Enlarge our hearts with the love of the Lord Jesus so that others around us might feel it and might enjoy it. Oh, Father, we we fail, we fail. But by your grace, we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. Start here in our congregation and overflow, overflow to our our neighbors and those we work with and our family members outside of, of the church. Do this for us. We pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying... Amen.